I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Sterling Johnson, the Jean R. Finley Professor of Geriatrics and Dementia at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Associate Director of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Dr. Johnson is a world-renowned brain imaging researcher. He is particularly interested in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease before people experience symptoms, and he studies this pre-symptomatic stage using biomarkers obtained through brain imaging and cerebral spinal fluid collection. Since 2014, Dr. Johnson has led the RAP study or the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, which has the distinction of being the world's largest family history study of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Johnson, I'm very excited to talk with you today. Welcome to Dementia Matters. Thank you, Dr. Chen, it's great to be here. Now you've been studying Alzheimer's disease for nearly 20 years. What got you interested in this field and what about it keeps you engaged in this work? I came to this field as a neuropsychologist and I began studying dementia and and the various uh, pre-dementia syndromes as a young uh, neuropsychology trainee and trying to understand how this disease is diagnosed from a cognitive standpoint and um, how we can improve upon what we were doing at the time. And um, so that got me uh, further and further into it from a research perspective. We started taking cognition into the MRI scanner and doing um, cognitive tasks with people while we were scanning their brain and watching blood flow change uh, to, to the areas of the brain that were, that were functionally involved in the task. And that was interesting and, and exciting and it helped us understand a lot about how the brain is organized. Uh, but we needed to do more and, and so the research keeps progressing and these days, as you mentioned, we are focused on more sensitive imaging techniques. We're, we can still watch somebody watch somebody's brain do work during the scanner, but uh, that doesn't necessarily tell us if they have Alzheimer's or are at risk for Alzheimer's. So the work we're doing now is very much about what kind of specific brain imaging findings can we or, or techniques can we use to understand when this disease starts. And it's so important that we understand the disease, how it develops, how it progresses, if we're really trying to figure out ways of preventing it and or curing it. That's exactly right. Yeah, we, we need to know uh, how early it starts, how fast it's changing in the brain, and how it results in eventual symptoms. So these are the things we need to, we need to know in order to understand if a potential prevention drug is going to work. You need to know how fast the disease is progressing in the first place so that we would know if we're slowing it down with the right prevention strategy. Now you've been a part of the Alzheimer's disease research program at Wisconsin since its inception in 2002. And in 2014 you took on the leadership role with the RAP study. So if you could give our listeners a short history of RAP, in particular why was, why was it created, who is in the study, and how has the study and its purpose really evolved over the past few years? Sure. RAP is a, it's a fantastic study. I keep learning new things about the study every day, and I'm, I'm always inspired by our participants. So we have 
about um, almost 1,600 participants now, 1,590. And these are people, for the most part, who have a parent with Alzheimer's disease. And we also have people who, who don't have a parent with AD. Um, but by and large, the unifying theme for the study has been this family history component. And it's not family history of the early onset type of AD we're talking about. It's family history of, of the general form, the more common form of Alzheimer's disease, which is the, the sporadic form that develops usually after age 65. So RAP began in 2001 by my colleague Mark Sager, and Dr. Sager was, a, I think, a, a, a visionary geriatrician here at UW, and I had the fortune of working with him uh, from 2002 when I got here to UW uh, and worked with him and Dr. Asana in developing the center, but also I uh, became very involved in the RAP study. I wrote my first grant around the RAP study here at UW and, and have uh, been writing and getting grants on the study ever since. So it's, it's a study about the early time course of Alzheimer's disease. Now, when you think of Alzheimer's, we, we know from the, st the statistics that about 10% of the people in the U.S. over age 65 are going to get Alzheimer's disease. In a cohort like this, we might double that, maybe up to 20%. Um, so it's, it's not that everybody in the cohort has the disease and we're just watching it. We don't know who in the cohort is going to get symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so we are trying to take in as much information about the cohort as we can. We're trying to find out their medical history from them. They fill out these large packets of information on their health histories, on their diet, on their sleep habits, on their physical activity, on their cognitive activities. Uh, and we piece all of this together with the cognitive testing that we do every two years. And we also collect laboratory tests, some blood. We collect a bunch of blood and spinal fluid, if people are willing, to, uh, to bank for, for um, future studies. And uh, we're finding some, some uh, wonderful things with that precious fluid. But I'm really uh, I'm inspired by our participants. I really am. I enjoy interacting with them. I get a sense of urgency when I'm around them because they're committed to the cause. Our retention rate is actually pretty high and um, and we just have a just a really dedicated group of volunteers. I think dedicated is the right word too. I have had the privilege of working with the rep participants and they really are loyal to the cause. They're loyal to the study. They're very much involved in the research aspect. They offer their ideas. They offer their history. And well, certainly they do offer their bodies to be studied. So what makes this group of research participants so unique and valuable when we think about Alzheimer's disease research? I think it's that uh, having that family history puts them at slightly higher risk. So it's a what we call a risk-enriched cohort. And, um, and again, we don't know who's going to get the disease necessarily from this, but we know that the cohort is enriched. So that together with the high retention rate and now the, the actual um, fairly long time that we've been studying these people is what makes this study so valuable and unique. And in, in recent years, we've actually the past 10 years, we've been adding on biomarker visits. And that means when funding is permitted, we've, we ask our participants to undergo these fancy PET scans, these fancy imaging techniques. And the information we've got from that has also 
just greatly leveraged the study and 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 really um, accentuated the value of the of the entire study. And it's really helped us understand again this process of Alzheimer's disease, or at least identifying it. And so what I'm hearing is that we're very lucky to have the RAP study here in Wisconsin. Can you tell us about some of the major scientific findings that you and your research team have really been able to uncover? Sure. The um, the RAP study has been in the hands of, of many research uh, researchers uh, here at UW and elsewhere. Um, some of the things that we've found here at UW are, um, first of all, the, the time course of these biomarkers. We're finding that people do indeed, many people who, who get these PET scans do indeed show signal earlier in life than you might think. And it leads to the question of what's going to happen. What, uh, will, will they eventually have symptoms? What's going to help us predict when they get symptoms? So we're in many ways um, in a wait and see. Uh, you know, we're, we're in an observational longitudinal study and part of the game is to observe and learn what we can as we observe. And it, it takes a long time for that. But in the meantime, we're, we're taking advantage of all the data that they've provided We've found relationships with many of the lifestyle that our participants have, have given us information on. Like um, we have found a relationship between hypertension and cognitive decline, and that's related to the biomarkers. We found relationships with physical activity and cognitive decline. We've found relationships with sleep. And some of these relationships are are subtle or small, um, but they still might be meaningful, especially in a cohort where most of the people are normal and will stay normal. It's, it's, um, it's remarkable that we're seeing these kind of relationships at all in, in such a healthy cohort. And um, we've had uh, other very interesting findings too. We're really pushing the neuropsychology technology to to see how early we can identify cognitive impairment. Um, the, the traditional clinical ways of, of identifying cognitive impairment are robust and they work very well, but maybe we can find more information by, by asking uh, the questions in a slightly different way. So that's some of the things that we're doing with the study. We publish roughly, I would say, anywhere from 15 to 20 papers a year on the RAP study just from our local group and then there's a number of projects going on throughout the world that the RAP has participated in. And I'm glad you said that because the data collected from the RAP research participants it isn't just a secret here in Wisconsin for our own researchers. This data is actually available to researchers all over the world who can use it to test their ideas and conduct their own studies. So could you tell us about a couple of those studies that have used RAP data um, from outside of Wisconsin? Sure. Yeah, in fact, uh, researchers can go to rap.wisc.edu and uh, fill out an application form to get the data. We like to share the data. We want to share the data. This is what the National Institutes of Health want from us. And I think it's what our participants want from us as well. They want this data to be put into the right hands of highly qualified scientists and, and uh, help us come to answers as fast as we possibly can. So yes, we've, we've been sharing this data 
um, across the world. Our colleagues in Australia have our data. Uh, we, we are part of a consortium with uh, John Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins, and the Washington University in St. Louis, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging, and our friends in Australia, the Australian Imaging and Biomarkers and Lifestyle Study. Um, and uh, we're, we're pooling our data in order to uh, address questions of high scientific impact that we wouldn't have been able to get to as a single study. Um, we just uh, this morning I was emailing with some colleagues in California who were interested in getting the data and I gave them our website rap.wista.edu and um, and uh, they're gonna uh, fill out a, a request form and we'll try to collaborate with them. The, the National Institute of, of Aging, like I said, they part of our application for the grant is to have a data sharing plan. So we have a data sharing plan and we have um, certainly the intent and the, the, uh, a little bit of the infrastructure needed to, to share this data throughout the world. I think it's important for people in the community to know that it is through collaboration that we anticipate more and more findings will come and working with other researchers across the world. But also I think going back to one of the things you said, Yes, this research is about understanding the disease through biomarkers, through hard science, but also this research is about helping people. So you mentioned earlier diagnostic techniques, learning how to identify mm -hmm. changes in human beings. And then something, of course, that I'm interested in, too, is ways that we may potentially be able to reduce risk. Mm -hmm. And it's really only through the participants and their willingness to share information and be a part of the study that we can figure out if something is actually true or maybe just good for us overall yeah yeah they're uh, they they understand that this research may not benefit them directly it's probably going to benefit their children hopefully and and the generations to come so their their dedication to this has been um, I think one of the highlights of of, of the whole project for me um, but yes, you're right, the, the findings may not come to fruition right now. Uh, we hope they do. We hope that we can work fast enough that we can help the participants that we have now. And one thing that we're able to do with this is um, use their information. You, by information, I mean looking at the, the rate of change we see on their cognitive tests and on the biomarker tests that we're collecting. And we want to see if we can use that to power, uh, or plan, I should say, the next round of clinical prevention trials. And uh, that's something where I really hope that RAP can become more involved with because I think prevention research is really where this field needs to be. And that's, that's where RAP is, is really excelling and, and can help the field in a big way. Now, one very exciting and very fresh idea that your research team is pursuing is something that I've been I've been involved in as well, and that's this research into amyloid chronicity. Now, amyloid is one of the key proteins in the development of Alzheimer's disease, but this idea of chronicity is relatively new. So this is a very technical topic, so I'm going to ask that you be brief and give us a non-technical summary sure. of what you guys are finding so far. Yeah. Well, chronicity is an interesting word. It's, it has to do with just how long a chronic disease has been in play. It has to do with the fact that 
Alzheimer's disease is a chronic disease, and it has a, uh, and it's not something that you can just say how long has the disease lasted. Um, chronicity implies that it's got that chronicness to it, and that this is a disease that, for all intents and purposes, is not going to go away. It's not something that has a, it's not an ailment that has a duration and has an endpoint. The endpoint for this is is dementia and beyond. So anyway, we, we use that term chronicity to gauge how long a person has had amyloid in their brain. And we've used some, uh, some algorithms, uh, some statistical approaches to um, look at the people who've had multiple scans over the last 10 years and see how the we've been able to see how the rate of change happens in people and from that we can trace it back to when they're we can interpolate basically to when they're they became amyloid positive when their amyloid in their brain crossed some threshold where we think it's uh, of some significance now and so we're calling that uh, that period between when they became positive and how old they are now the amyloid duration or amyloid chronicity. And that's going to help us a lot because uh, so f basically the, the current practice in the field is to uh, just uh, determine whether someone is amyloid positive or not. And with this piece of information, we can tell not only that someone has amyloid in their brain, but how long it's been there. So when we think about prevention trials, uh, we might want to equate people for how long they've had amyloid. Uh, the, somebody who's only had amyloid maybe six months or a year might be in a very different cognitive space than someone who's had it in their brain for 20 years already. They may be eminently declining, whereas the person who's only had it for one or two years may have many years left of, of good quality of life. This disease uh, we're also finding with this uh, research that the disease doesn't begin at the same time in everybody. There's a few people who might get it in their early 50s, and by getting it I mean become amyloid positive. And there's other people who might convert to becoming amyloid positive in their 70s or 80s. And um, if we uh, think that the you have to live with amyloid in your brain for 20 or more years before the symptoms ever manifest. It's giving us a really uh, powerful uh, beacon of who we should be studying and, and uh, who we should be focusing on if we want to prevent this disease. So chronicity is turning out to be a very important concept. We just had a paper accepted for publication just uh, last week on, on our first um, analyses of this chronicity concept. And we think there'll be many more to come and we think it'll, it'll help us understand resilience, it'll help us understand risk, and more importantly, it'll just give us some precision of what we're dealing with in the pre-symptomatic timeframe. I wanna tell our listeners that there's actually gonna be more on this topic because we will have the lead authors of the study on the podcast shortly to talk about amyloid chronicity. So please stay tuned to that. Now, Sterling, in closing, I want to ask you something that I ask a lot of our guests, but as a brain health expert, researcher, what do you do in your personal life to promote brain health? Um, you know, with everything that's happening in the, 
the news media about how you can do this behavior and and stave off Alzheimer's disease or dementia. It's it's enough to make us all you know even more health conscious and health heightened uh, and maybe a little health neurotic. And I I have no trouble getting into that space. That's just my own mentality. But some things that I do um, personally, I try to exercise as much as I can. Um, you know, three to five times a week, I'm either jogging on the treadmill or outside when it's when the weather permits. Uh, riding bikes and or doing other things outside. I try to uh, eat well. Try to avoid sugar. I try to um, eat good things, and that's sometimes what a good thing to eat is in the eye of the beholder. But um, I try to eat healthy things, I should say, and. Um, and just uh, stay mentally active. Um, I, my, fortunately, my my work, this work, um, keeps me going a lot, and so I try to do things that are not always work related, but something else to 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 relax a little bit every now and then. But those are some of the things I do. Well, thank you, Sterling. And I'll say one of the things you didn't say, which I want our listeners to pay attention to. Is that you didn't mention sleep, and that's probably oh. because Dr. Johnson doesn't sleep that much. <laughs> but for the rest of our listeners, sleep is really important too. So try to get more than seven hours. <laughs> but that's for that's for good today. Advice. Good advice. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Dementia Matters, Dr. Johnson, and I'm sure we'll be having you on again. Thank you. Thanks. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Abishir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.